want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Psalm 130. We have been walking through the Psalms, a series called Praying with, the people, with God's People over these last months, and we're in the Psalms yet for a couple weeks. Today we come to Psalm 130. Have you ever found yourself in an incredibly desperate situation? Earlier this summer in July, a man in his late 50s, early 60s, was in, the, in a wilderness area about 40 miles outside of Nome, Alaska. He was working on a small mining claim by himself, staying in a small tin hut. And he was attacked by a grizzly bear. Uh, dragged by that grizzly bear down to the river where this man no doubt expected to meet his end, but he managed somehow to escape the grizzly bear and he, he made it back up to his tin hut, this little thing, building, small little building that he was staying in. But his ordeal was just beginning. He had no way of reaching the outside world. There was no cell signal, but this attack was not over. Uh, for over a, a week... For the, for the coming days, for a week, this man endured repeated attacks by this tenacious grizzly that kept coming and coming and coming. It, it ripped the door of his tin shack off, and this man was badly injured, somehow managed to avoid death. He was found by chance when a Coast Guard helicopter diverted off its planned flight route because of low uh, clouds saw a scrawl on the roof of his hut, help me, SOS. And and when they looked, they saw this man on his knees, waving his hands desperately at them. They found him. The door of his shack had been ripped off. He was badly injured and desperately sleep-deprived. He had only two bullets left in his pistol. Can you imagine what that man endured for a week? Day after day, this grizzly coming back, every night not daring to sleep. Imagine sitting there listening to this grizzly rip the door off your cabin. Imagine his sense of desperation. This morning, we're going to be exploring Psalm 130, which Eugene Peterson calls anguished prayer. A prayer out of the depths, a prayer out of desperation. But, but what is good news is that it won't leave us there. It will, it will prove to be a prayer of hope. As has been the case over the last two Sundays, the psalm that we're looking at today is once more out of a small collection of psalms in the Psalter that is the Songs of Ascent. Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are the Songs of Ascent. That is a small collection of songs sung by God's people as they traveled from across Palestine, making their way up, ascending to Jerusalem, the, the capital of the city, uh, the, of, the, of the nation, the, the place of the temple, the place of God's presence. And as they ascended, literally, they uh, sung these Songs of Ascent. Two weeks ago, we looked at 120, which introduced that collection. A reminder that we live in hostile territory, that this world is not our home, that we are on a journey to God and to God's presence. Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 126, a prayer for joy, a prayer not prayed out of joy, but but out of remembering joy, about longing for joy, and one that reminds us that one day 
God will wipe away every tear and we will know the fullness of joy. This morning we come to this, uh, the third song of ascent that we're looking at, Psalm 130, which is anguished prayer, a prayer of desperation, but a prayer that will prove to be a prayer of hope. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. I want to explore this text with you this morning. We're going to walk through it and look at three things. Desperation, declaration, and difference. The, the desperation of the psalmist, the declaration of the psalmist, and the difference the, the truth that he proclaims makes in his life. So uh, the desperation, the declaration, and the difference. Let's begin with the desperation. The psalm begins, the psalmist begins crying out to the Lord. Out of the depths, says, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. To be in the depths is to be in a place of desperation, floundering, uh, the place of terror, filled with, with fear. The, the imagery is literally out of the depths of the sea. I don't know if you recognize this or have thought of this, but the Israelites were not a seafaring people. They were a bunch of landlubbers, for the most part. I know some of them had fishing boats, and they went out on the Sea of Galilee, but they were not challenging the Mediterranean. I mean, the Phoenicians were. There were seafaring people. Israelites were not. And, and so this language of being in the depths, this place of chaos, this place of danger, is the imagery here. To be in the depths out of which he cries, is to be caught in dangerous and deep waters. James Mays puts it this way. He says, the depths, it, it represents growing in distress, being overwhelmed and sucked down by the bottomless waters of trouble. To be in the depths is to be where death prevails instead of life. This desperation, this imagery of being in the waters and sinking. When I was a little kid, I don't know how old I was. I wasn't a terribly strong swimmer. I was okay at that point. But I remember going with my family in Niagara Falls to a water park. There was a wave pool, and I went out deeper than I should have, and the waves started. And, and I remember struggling to get my head above water. The waves came, and, and I, my feet would hit the bottom of the pool, and I would jump up trying to break the surface. But I timed my jump exactly wrong. And so every time the wave went up, I went up and down with the wave. And I, desperately trying to break the surface, I remember panicking. It might have been just for a few seconds, but... A lifeguard saw my hand, and I was close enough to the edge. I remember they grabbed me and pulled me up. And the psalmist is in the depths. He is desperate. What is clear is that he is overwhelmed. And what's really interesting and really important for us to note is that being in this place of desperation, being in the depths, does not call the, cause the psalmist to pull away from God, to step away he doesn't try and rectify his situation on his own. He doesn't try and get his act together. He cries out to God in his desperation. The Christian faith, and we need to hear this. I want every, if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this. 
The Christian faith is not a self-improvement project. It's not. Christianity is not about cleaning ourselves up and when we are good, when we are good enough, if you are good enough, if you look around and go, well, I'm better than them. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about us being dead and needing to be given life. That is, we're all broken and sinful and we need, we need God's help. We need what only God can do. And so in this place of desperation, the psalmist cries out to God. He doesn't pull away. He doesn't go, oh, I'm going to first fix my life get presentable, and then I'll come. He cries out in his desperation, out of the depths. Eugene Peterson writes, our place in the depths, I love this, our place in the depths is not out of bounds from God. Isn't that awesome? Our place in the depths is not out of bounds from God. There's something else we need to recognize, however, before we move on, and that is the reason for the psalmist's uh, desperation. There's lots of things that can cause desperation in our lives, suffering, trouble of various kinds, and certainly those things may have been involved in what the psalmist is experiencing. But what I want you to see is what is at the root of his desperation. The root of his desperation is his own sin. It's his own guilt before God. Look with me. Verse 2, let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. In the following verse, verses 3 and 4, he he speaks of God's forgiveness, of his need for God's forgiveness. his, His desperation comes out of the fact that he recognizes his sinfulness. He recognizes that he has offended a holy God, that he cannot stand before God. Because of his sin, he's in trouble. Because of his sin, he is in this place of desperation. He knows that sin is no small thing. It's not a triviality. James Montgomery Boyce says this, Our problem today is that most of us do not have much of an awareness of sin. Most of us do not have an awareness of sin. I remember Brennan, my youngest son, when he was little, some of you may remember, Brennan was our easiest baby, bar none, till 12 months, a breeze. Something happened when he turned one. And, and, and Brennan subsequently gave us a real run for our money. We could tell stories. I could show you some YouTube videos. Sorry, not, not YouTube videos. Videos that I occasionally threaten to put on YouTube. Brennan gave us a run for, his, for, our, for the, our money. But I remember one of the experiences that is both, in some ways, a little bit hard as a father, but, but also it was a blessing, was there would be times, numerous times, putting Brennan to bed. And I remember Brennan having this, this desperation, saying, you know, and talk about, you know, how's tomorrow, you know, obey tomorrow. And, and, and Brennan's having this desperation, like, Daddy, I can't be good. With tears running down his face. Daddy, I can't be good. Just this acute awareness of his own sinfulness, his own proneness to, to repeat tomorrow the things that had happened today. It was always an opportunity for me as his father to speak of God's grace and to be reminded of my own need for grace. 
The problem today is that most of us do not have an awareness of sin. Do we see the sinfulness of our sin? Do do we feel the weight of our guilt before a holy God? Do we grieve? Do we sorrow? Do we weep over our sin? Do we feel this sense of desperation? Or do we downplay it? Do we minimize it? Do we believe what many in our world believe and say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than lots of people. It's not that big a deal. The Sermon on the Mount, the the largest block of teaching we have directly from the lips of Jesus, begins with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It, It means to realize that we come to God bankrupt, that we come to God with empty hands and empty pockets. We don't come and go, God, look at all these good things I'm doing for you. God, you're actually fortunate to have me. I'm one of the good ones. No, to be poor in spirit is to come and say, God, I have nothing. I am desperate. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we come and we realize that we are desperate, that our only hope is Jesus, that's when we receive the kingdom of heaven. The psalmist sees his sin, he sees his guilt, he recognizes the deep waters in which he finds himself, and the desperate situation in which He lives, and from that place of the depths, he cries out to God. Let's turn from the desperation to the declaration. The psalmist begins this prayer in this place, but he doesn't leave us there. He declares to us the gospel, the good news. Here, in the Old Testament, we encounter the gospel. The great reformer Martin Luther loved Psalm 130. He called it the Pauline Psalm. That is not that Paul wrote it. Paul didn't show up for centuries, but he recognized that Paul, who proclaimed so clearly, so marvelously in Romans, the gospel, that that we are saved by grace through faith alone. That, that that same message is here in the Psalms. Centuries earlier, the good news that, that God is a God who saves by grace. There are actually a number of things that we encounter, a number of declared truths in this prayer that, that, that point us to the gospel, that speak to the gospel from different angles in different ways. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. With you there is forgiveness. There are many misconceptions about what God is like, about who God is. Last week I spoke about one, that God is this cosmic killjoy. That God, God is, doesn't want us to be happy, He doesn't want us to have joy. That's why He gave us laws, you know, to keep us from doing any of the fun stuff. There are many who think that that's God's, uh, that's what God's like, that God is against our happiness and joy, that he's watching to make sure we're not enjoying ourselves too much, that somehow it's it's good and godly and God-honoring to be serious and sober. And to be sure, there are many things about which to be serious, but God is seriously for our joy. I hope we saw that last week. 
Our greatest joy is found in Him. In fact, when we go after lesser joys, the joys of this world, God's heart is grieved because they will never satisfy. He wants us to know the fullness of joy, which is found only in Him. Another misconception people have about God is that He is a celestial cop, just watching for some violation and, and making notes. I didn't talk to Martin ahead of time, but it was interesting to hear him share this morning. Many people think of God as this celestial cop just watching to see as soon as we cross a line, we cross a boundary, our speedometer goes a little too high. And look out. I am very supportive of police. Police in general, the Edmonton police. I often take opportunities, especially in light of what's going on in our culture, to thank police officers when I encounter them for what they do to keep our, our society safe. I'm grateful for police. I think police are the good guys. But nonetheless, I tend to have a knee-jerk reaction, at least initially. It's reflexive when I see a police car, particularly if I see it in my rearview mirror. Immediately, I check my speedometer. It's just reflexive. Now, I, I, I may have developed that sense for good reason when I was a younger driver. But, but there's just this deeply ingrained sense that they're looking to get me. It's just reflexive. I, I look, what am I doing wrong? Is that how we think about God? That he is just watching to see if or when you screw up? That he's making a list, checking it twice? Jesus is so much better than Santa Claus. Making a list, checking it twice. Jesus, is, is that who we think God is? That he's just watching, tracking, making a list of all our screw-ups, all our sins? Now, the, the point is not that God is ignorant of our sins. The point is that God is about forgiveness. He is for forgiveness. He has both the authority and the disposition to forgive. The psalmist says... With you, there is forgiveness. Eugene Peterson, in the message paraphrase of this, puts it this way. Forgiveness is your habit. Is that how we think about God? That God is for forgiveness? That forgiveness is his habit? God, in his mercy, has chosen to deal with sinners by grace, with grace. And this choice is grounded in who he is, in what he is like. Look with me at verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Unfailing love. Love that does not fail. You and I will fail, but God's love is unfailing. With him is full redemption. Not partial redemption, not, hey, here's some grace and the rest is your own effort, you got to do it. Not, hey, you win this prize, but give me your credit card number. Full redemption. With God is full redemption, unfailing love. The psalmist recognizes that if God were not like this, no one could stand, no one would have a leg to stand on it, is how we read it in the message. This is who God is. This is the God revealed in this prayer and in Scripture. God, full of grace, full of mercy, forgiving sin, rescuing those who are drowning in the depths of their sin and guilt, rescuing those who are in desperation. I just want to speak to those here with us today, online or here in person, who don't know Jesus. I, I so desperately want you to hear this, that Christianity, as I said earlier, is not a self-help project, self-improvement project. 
that, that God is a God who loves you, who wants you to know his love, who, who has a disposition to forgive, who offers grace, who offers mercy. The, the story of Jesus is, is a story of God putting on flesh, becoming a man, coming and living in this world, and then going to the cross, being crucified. Why? Why did Jesus die? He went to the cross in my place, in your place. He suffered the penalty that you and I deserve so that our sins would be punished because God is holy. Sin is a big deal. God is just and he must punish it. And so God himself came and he bore the penalty for our sin on the cross so that all who trust in him all who put their hope in Him, all who recognize the desperation of their reality, the, the, the deep waters they are in because of their sin and their guilt before a holy God, that all who look to Him and repent, who turn from their sin and say, God, I need you, Jesus, you are my only hope, that we receive His grace, we receive His mercy, that He pours out in abundance His forgiveness upon us. We are washed, we are cleansed, we are made new. We are clothed with His perfection. So even from this day moving forward, it's never about your record for Him. It's about Christ's perfect obedience credited to you. So you're free. For the first time, you are free to learn to obey. You're, you're free to walk in the ways of God because you have been forgiven and clothed with righteousness, redeemed, adopted, and you're His. That's the message of Christianity. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you don't know His love, you don't know His grace, His mercy in your life, I pray that even right now in these moments, you might open your heart to Him. That's the God revealed in Scripture. And He invites you. He invites everyone to come and receive His mercy, to receive His grace, to enter into His love. Though the psalmist did not know the means of redemption, the psalmist as he prays, as he declares that with God there is forgiveness. He did not know the means by which that forgiveness would come. He didn't know about Christ. He didn't know about the incarnation. He, he didn't know about uh, the atonement. He didn't know that Christ would die in our place, that, that Christ would rise. The psalmist didn't understand any of those particulars, but he understood who God was, and he understood that with God there is forgiveness. That leads us to the third thing we wanted to look at, and that's the difference. We've looked at the desperation of the psalmist, the declaration of the psalmist, and now the difference all this makes in the life of the psalmist. What difference does it make? What difference does it make when we see the deep waters we are in, the desperation of our situation? When we see that, and, and then those realities are confronted with the declarations of the gospel that with God there is forgiveness. What happens? What, what difference does that make? And, and there are a few parts to this answer. A few things asserted in the psalm. Look with me first at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. With you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. There is a purpose to God's forgiveness. Tremper Longman writes, God's God forgives for purpose. Forgiven sinners come to revere God. There are some who hear this message of grace and come to the conclusion that because God is gracious, because God is merciful, because He forgives, because forgiveness is His habit, 
Sin, therefore, is no big deal. That, that we're free to do whatever we want. That perspective is called license, or another uh, theological term is antinomianism, lawlessness. The Apostle Paul, in proclaiming the gospel, in proclaiming God's grace and mercy, uh, recognizes that this will be an argument. It will be something that needs to be addressed. In Romans 5.20, he says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. His point is, where we sin, God's grace is more. God's grace, we can't out-sin God's grace. No matter what you've done, no matter what your guilt, no matter what sins you've committed, God's grace is abundant and sufficient. That's the point. But he recognizes, Paul recognizes, that there will be some who say, hey, if, if the more I sin, God's grace increases all the more, so we just go on sinning. He, he, he addresses that in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And his answer is an unequivocal, by no means, of course not. Because, because you are new in Christ. You were dead and now you're alive. You were in the kingdom of darkness. Now you're in the kingdom of light. You were a child of wrath. Now you're a child of God. You were lost and a slave to sin. Now you are found and you're a slave to righteousness. You have been made new. You're a new creation in Christ. Of course you can't just go on sinning because that is incongruent with who you are. That we have a new life. That we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So of course not. Of course not. You can't just go on sinning wildly. You, you were made new. You were a slave to righteousness. You're called to obedience. You're called to walk with Jesus, live out this new reality. And of course, Paul never says that we won't sin, that we won't struggle, that we won't fall and scrape our spiritual knees. But when we sin as Christians, we are living in a way that is completely incongruent with who we are, with, with our identity. The Christian life, learning to follow Jesus, learning to obey Jesus, is about learning to be who we already are in Christ. Grace does not free us to sin. It frees us from sin. For the first time in our life, we're actually free to grow in obedience, to grow in Christ's likeness, to become fully human, to become who God created us to be. The psalmist declares that God forgives so that we can, with reverence, serve God. Another way this is sometimes expressed is with the phrase, to walk in the fear of the Lord. With reverence. It's, it's easy to misunderstand that phrase, the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? If, if I were trying to explain to someone who had never encountered a butterfly before, what a butterfly was, and I got out a brick of butter and a fly of some kind, one that flies around or for a tent or for a pair of pants, and said, okay, I got a butter and a fly. Would that go very far in helping to explain what a butterfly is? So, so we, we can't simply take these words, you know, fear of the Lord and go, okay, I got Lord, that's God, and fear, that means terror, so I just got to be, like, afraid of him. That's what it means? It, it doesn't. To, to walk in the fear of the Lord means to, to live my life in light of what is true about God, that God is holy, that God is just, that God is loving and gracious and merciful, that God longs for me to know Him and to receive His grace. And it means to live in light of what's true about me, that I am lost and without hope apart from Him. 
To walk in the fear of the Lord is to live in light of what is true about God and me. To know His holiness, to know His perfection, to know His grace and His love, and to know that, that I need Him. That I live my light in, in light of those realities, always aware of my need for God. That's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. Reverence is helpful in getting us to where we need that, that sense of, of awe before God, before His holiness, His perfection, His love, His grace, His mercy, that, that God's habit is forgiveness. I mean, that's to, just to, to know who God is that it moves us to that place of, of awe and, and reverence. and It moves us to worship Him. It, it moves us to, to love Him, to give thanks to Him, to, to love Him with, our whole, with, with all our heart and our soul and our strength, to, to love Him with everything because He is everything. He is what we desperately need. I mean, if God were keeping a list, right? What does the psalmist say? Lord, have you kept a record of sins? But God's not like that. God is full of grace and mercy out of love for us, has redeemed us by His Son. And so that's who God is. And we live in light of that. And, and we're moved to worship. We're moved to, to give our lives, to pour out our lives for Him. Look with me now at, at verse 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in His word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. That's not simple, simply poetic redundancy. The psalmist is trying to communicate his deep longing for God. He recognizes his desperation. He recognizes God's amazing grace and mercy, his propensity to forgive. And he longs for God. Derek Kidner says, it's the Lord himself, not simply escape from punishment that the writer longs for. Christianity is not about simply punching some get-out-of-hell ticket. Christianity is about being ushered into a relationship with God who made us and who loves us and longs for us to know our greatest joy in him. And the psalmist marvels at the truth of both his desperation and who God is and what that means. And he is moved to long for God, to desire God. He waits for God. His whole being waits more than the watchmen wait for the morning. I've never had a watchman job. Perhaps some of you have. Eugene Peterson, early in his life, worked as a watchman in New York City in a building from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., he sat there. He shares a little bit about that experience. But in the course of writing about that, he writes this. The people who employed me thought it was worth several dollars an hour for me to wait through the night and watch for the morning. But I never did anything, never constructed anything, never made anything happen. I waited and watched. I hoped. His work was to wait his work was to, to wait, to watch for the morning. The, the psalmist says, as the watchmen wait for the morning. That's what he does for God. He, his eyes are fixed on God. He is centered his life on God. He waits for God. That's the one thing he does. He longs for Him. His whole life is focused on God. Life with God became the center of everything for him. He'd been rescued by God. He'd been forgiven by God. He'd been redeemed by God. And he's left longing for God, for intimacy with God, to walk with him. His eyes are fixed on him. He waits for the Lord. His heart has been captured by the Lord. 
So what difference does any of this make? It makes all the difference in the world. It, it, it means that our desperate situation has been remedied because of Christ and His love, because of God's goodness and His mercy. And, and it changes everything. The graciousness of God radically changes everything and fills us with hope. It moves us from despair to peace, from rebellion to loyalty, from estrangement to intimacy. And, and it, it leads us to serve the Lord with reverence, with reverence, with awe, with, with delight, with worship to serve the Lord, to pour out our lives for God. Is that true in my life? Is that true in your life? Have we been so captured by the desperation of our lostness because of our sin and the glory of God's mercy and forgiveness that we wait for God, that our eyes are fixed on God, that God is the center of everything, that we live our lives day by day, hour by hour, with our eyes fixed on him, waiting for him, saying, God, with reverence I serve you. My life is for you. That our lives are radically changed. That we are ruined for just ordinary lives, pursuing the things of this world. That we live for him, serving him, waiting for him, longing for him. I wait for the Lord. As the watchman waits for the morning, my eyes are fixed on him. The psalmist concludes this song with a testimony. He cries out at the end of the psalm, no longer uh, to God, but now he cries out to his people. He says, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Put your hope in the Lord. Not in success, not in fame, not in wealth, not in political leaders or political parties or or political realities, in, in social justice movements. Don't put your hope in those things. Put your hope in the Lord. Don't put your hope in chariots and horses. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some trust in those powers that we see around us. But we trust in the name of the Lord. He cries out to Israel. He cries out to the people of God. He says, put your hope in the Lord. No matter who you are this morning, no matter what you've done, no matter the depths that you find yourself in. This psalm is a powerful and hopeful reminder of who God is, that God is full of grace, that with God there is forgiveness, that in God there is hope. Eugene Peterson, it's a way with words. Sometimes it feels like the bottom drops out of life. Peterson writes this, The bottom has a bottom. The heights are boundless. The bottom has a bottom, but the heights are, are boundless. God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, the hope that we have in Him is, is bigger and more glorious than we can imagine. So put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord. I, I was thinking I wanted to play a song to conclude and can't do it because that will cut off everyone who's with us online. I don't want to do that to you. But I want to encourage everyone when you go home or people at home, you got you to head start to look up Josh Baldwin's song, Get Your Hopes Up. It's a marvelous anthem just encouraging us to do this, to put your hope in the Lord. 
That's my hope. That's my prayer for everyone here today, that we would leave this place, that we would put our hope in the Lord, that we would, yes, we'd know the desperation of our situation apart from God, that, that our sin is a desperate thing, but that God is a God of mercy and grace, that with Him there is forgiveness, that we can put our hope in Him. May that be the cry of each one of our hearts, and may we with reverence serve Him. May we give our lives to Him in worship and love pouring our lives out centered on Him with the eyes fixed on Him, for He alone is glorious and worthy of our lives. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You that in You we find hope. Father, where we have put our hope in lesser things, in some cases perhaps in evil things, Lord, we ask for Your mercy and grace. And we pray, Jesus, that you would lift our eyes to you, that we would wait for you, that we would look to you, that we would glory in you, that with reverence we would serve you. We pray this in your name. Amen.